Hi, I am calling to find out about any type of assistance. Um, We're looking for the market and not really sure what to tell them at this point with interest rates going higher and higher. Gas prices are a frightening $5 a gallon, but I paid 6 and over 6 The economy has been really strange lately. Is it better with the stock market being a little bit hectic right now or erratic to do options? Do we hope that the market will rebound? Gas prices are really high. Unemployment is really low. And it can be hard to figure out how are we supposed to think about this moment? Is this a good economy or is it a bad economy? And what should we be doing with our money? Is there any advice you can give on what to do on what might be a more short-term concern? Thanks so much. Appreciate your help. Take care. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 4th. Today, we have some of our experts here at The Post answering your questions about the economy, from inflation to interest rates to how everyone worrying about a recession could actually lead to one. A lot of the questions we received, probably unsurprisingly, are about inflation. Prices are really high. Rent, groceries, flights to visit my family. Like, I booked flights recently and I was like, what the heck? That is our executive producer, Maggie Penman. And as you can tell, she has a lot of anxiety about how this economy is starting to affect all of our lives in ways that feel very personal. So she sought out people from around the newsroom and sat them down for a conversation. Maggie's going to take it from here. Okay. So I'm here in the studio with three brilliant minds here at The Post who are going to help us tackle some of these questions that we've gotten about the economy right now. Um, Let's just start by having you go around and say who you are and what you do. My name is Rachel Siegel, and I cover the Federal Reserve and economic policy here at The Post. I'm Ava Batrai, and I'm the economics correspondent here at The Post. I'm Michelle Singletary. I am the personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. So what do economists mean when they say inflation is high? And what does that mean when when we hear that inflation is way up? So what it basically means is the cost for you to buy goods and services is more. And it's going to cost you more to buy that washing machine than it cost you last year or to buy that new or used car or chicken um, or good for sakes, crab meat. (laughs) You know, those prices are are more. And if your dollar hasn't kept pace with inflation, so you maybe didn't get a wage increase or um, you've got to tap your savings, it's going to cost you more to do the things that you are used to doing. Mm hmm. I've noticed a lot of people who are critical of the stimulus checks that were sent out early in the pandemic. President Biden gave Americans three $600 stimulus checks. And then... And attributing some of this inflation to that. He crashed their 401ks and increased their gasoline bills by $800, their food bills by, by $3,000 and their rent by $2,000 a month. And I wonder, how true is that, Michelle? There's a lot of Monday night quarterbacking going on. A lot of the stimulus money actually did go to sustain families. There was a portion of the American public that got the money and could save it and, and buy, you know, 
things that were not a necessity. But I think the vast majority of people needed the stimulus payments to put food on their table and keep that roof over their heads. We know that the stimulus payments help lift millions of children out of poverty. So I think too many people are going back and saying, oh, we pumped all this money into the economy unnecessarily. When the pandemic hit, businesses shut down, people lost their jobs, and they were using that money to buy necessities. We're looking at people who save, and and it's true, lots of people were saving, lots of people paid down their debt, but just as many, if not more, needed that to live, to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. That's such an important point, and I'm so glad you brought that up. And I, I think that is something that has gotten lost a little bit in all of the discussion about inflation is that we were in a really deep but very brief recession early in the pandemic. So many people lost their jobs. A lot of people were forced to stay home and couldn't make money. And so they they really needed those stimulus checks to buy necessities. Um, Rachel, I, I'd love to ask you, like when when we talk about the way that government spending can lead to inflation, what is sort of the mechanism by which that happens? Because I think this is something that we hear a lot of people say, but we don't really understand what it means that this money being pumped into the economy could cause some of the inflation that we're seeing. Yeah, I think when we think about it in terms of inflation, we think about things that push demand up before supply could catch up. And as Michelle noted, there was a huge need to be able to spend that money to just get by, especially at that point in the pandemic. At the same time, if we're looking at people's ability to spend, no matter what they were necessarily spending that money on, when you push demand up before, say, Factories can produce the goods that people are looking to buy or businesses can rehire people at the same rate that people might be looking to eat out at restaurants again or travel again. When you start to see that mismatch, that can start pushing prices up. And there are many, many, many things that followed, which I think Abba can get into. But when we start to sort of see demand inch up, that was one of the things that kickstarted inflation last year. I think the challenges actually began even before the government stimulus came out when, you know, the pandemic immediately shut down the world economy, really. All sorts of businesses shut down, manufacturing shut down, people just stopped spending. And that meant that companies stopped producing. And so then all of a sudden you have people sort of ramping back up again saying, hey, maybe I should buy a car. And usually if there is very high demand for cars, the factory will just churn them out at a higher pace. But this time around, there weren't enough car chips, there weren't enough metal parts. There weren't enough workers to make those cars. And so when you have that heightened demand with these huge shortages and, you know, supply delays, that just really drives the price up immediately. And that's what we saw. So I know as someone who is um, very addicted to looking at Zillow and Redfin that this is also happening in the housing market. Michelle, I wonder, like, would you be able to break down a little bit? Why is housing so expensive right now? And Are you hearing about this from your readers that people are really struggling to buy a house or in a lot of cases even pay rent? Well, I think it's the same issue about supply and demand. There are not as many people putting their homes up for sale. And so there's less inventory. Builders weren't building homes at the same rates they were before the pandemic. So you've got those two things going on. And so people are so desperate. I've got to get this house now. They started to outbid each other. And we create the very problem that we complain about as if there's never going to be another house. And oftentimes because the money was so cheap, 
you know, interest rates were very low for mortgages. So those two combinations, people could bid higher because they had cheaper money to buy that house. And that's why people were having some difficulty and, you know, foregoing some basic things like an inspection. I mean, you should not buy a home without getting an inspection, but people are so worried they aren't going to get a home that they forego them. They pay more and they, you know, and you get into this buy-in frenzy that isn't associated with the reality of can you really afford that house? So, Michelle, you just brought up a really key point here, which is that the money is getting more expensive. And I'd like to turn back to Rachel, who covers the Fed, to just ask, so why, why is that? Why is money getting more expensive now? Why is it more expensive to borrow money to buy a house? And what does that have to do with inflation? Sure. So one of the main ways that the government can get a control of inflation rests in the power of the Federal Reserve. And what the Federal Reserve can do is raise interest rates. And it basically raises this this rate that then trickles through all other types of lending, like mortgages or loans that businesses can get, and makes it so that getting those loans or being able to invest, being able to hire is more expensive, getting a car loan, getting a mortgage. And the idea is that if those things are more expensive, then people will maybe pull back. They might not try to get that mortgage and try to buy one of the few houses that are available. They might not buy that car. Businesses might not try to take on more employees and sort of reduce demand in the labor market. So the thinking is that through this one tool that is actually kind of blunt and doesn't really work with a whole lot of precision, that the Fed can cool down this kind of demand in the economy, slow down the economy, make it more expensive to do the kinds of things that have been relatively cheap for the past couple of years, and that that will be able to help bring down prices for cars or make it so that home prices don't keep escalating the way we've seen them. So, Abba... I wonder if you could just explain how this works in the economy, because as Rachel said, and I've been hearing a lot of people say this, this is sort of a blunt instrument. So how does it actually work when the Fed raises interest rates? What does that do to the economy? The housing market is a great example of this because it's the most immediate way that many Americans feel this. As soon as the Fed raises interest rates, we start to see that trickle down to the mortgage market. Mortgages are already soaring, really, you know, to almost 6%. And what that means is that it becomes that much more expensive to buy that house. So it cools demand immediately. If you were on the fence saying my budget is $2,000 a month, and all of a sudden, you know, you're having to pay a lot more in interest, you're maybe rethinking that purchase. But on the flip side of that, it means that more potential home buyers may be sitting it out and continuing to rent for longer. So this sort of shows, you know, just how tricky a game this can be because then you're seeing rising rents, which are already very high, sort of get even more pressure upwards. And so it's very inexact science and it's complicated by all of these real world factors. Yeah. And and one of the things that we've been hearing about a lot recently is how raising interest rates can cause a recession. Um, How does raising interest rates cause a recession? I think the big takeaway is that if the economy slows too much or is forced to slow suddenly or with some sort of aggressive force, that is not the kind of slowdown you want. So we could pick our metaphors from landing a plane to driving on a highway. You don't want to slam on the brakes. You want to be able to sort of cruise to a, a soft landing is what some policymakers call it. And what will ultimately determine that is if the Federal Reserve has to keep raising interest rates and hike them up with more intensity, with more aggression, with more force, so that they're not just sort of 
cooling the economy down to a kind of simmer, but needing to slam on the brake so hard that it causes this jolt through the economy that can come out through people being laid off as opposed to businesses just deciding not to hire or any sort of other number of factors that people feel as much more sudden pain as opposed to something that would otherwise be a little bit smoother. So, okay, so let's just stick with the housing market for a second here and explain an example of this. So let's say the Fed raised interest rates really dramatically and suddenly you have to pay 20 percent to borrow money to buy a house. You, you know, mortgage rates are, are suddenly 20 percent. A lot of people just wouldn't buy a house, right? And so then the idea is that could mean that building companies might lay people off, real estate companies might lay people off. A lot of jobs could be lost just by that sort of sudden jolt to the economy. Is that right, Abba? Absolutely. That's right. And job losses are huge because it's not only that lost job, but it's everything that happens down the line as a result. You might get evicted. You might, you know, have to foreclose on your house. And so there's huge ramifications for you and your family, your community, and also for small businesses, which are much more likely to fold as a result. After the break, Maggie asks Abba, Rachel, and Michelle about how fears of a recession could actually fuel a recession. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Okay, so as we think about this uncertain moment we're in where people are getting nervous. You've already seen this in the market. People who have a 401k might notice their 401k is down. And we we actually got a question from a reader named Steve who's trying to juggle all of this information. I've long been in agreement with the proponents of putting off Social Security until age 70. Here's my specific question. With the way the market is going down, When has it gotten to the point where one says to themselves, I cannot keep cashing in my 401k at such a low dollar value as now. Now it is time to go ahead and take Social Security, uh, even though I'm not yet age 70. So, Michelle, is there a moment when the market is bad enough that we should just reconsider the conventional wisdom we've gotten about saving or retirement? Or is your advice just hang in there? Yeah, you know, we can't we can't look at the market for just today. You have to look at it long term. And so I understand this caller's issue. If you need that money to live, to buy your groceries, then you can uh, certainly apply for Social Security. But if you can hold off and one way you could do that is perhaps you've been withdrawing four percent of your portfolio, but you can live on three percent or even two percent if you have 
other income other than your Social Security. So perhaps you've got a pension. You've got some savings that you set aside for an emergency. But the wisdom of investing and still investing and not pulling out during times like this still stands historically. We know the market will recover. Recessions end. And if you panic and pull out everything or panic and make decisions like you really could get by without taking Social Security, you want to do that because the longer you wait, the more you get up to 70, about 8% more a year. And right now the market isn't paying that. So if you can keep your money in play with Social Security without um, taking that benefit, that's okay. However, You've got to do what you have to do to make sure that you're sustaining your household. But I always tell people, start with what you need. If you can get by without taking Social Security, then hold off. If you can't, go right ahead and get that money because that's what it's there for. Mm -hmm. And would you give the same advice to younger people who are thinking like, oh, okay, the market's down. Should I pull money out or hang in there? Is the advice the same or is it different if if you're younger? If you're younger, it is so hard to argue to save for something that is not going to happen for decades. I have a young adult who just graduated from college and I've been telling her, you know, put that money in your retirement. And she just looked at me. She was she's going to be a teacher. And she said, are you kidding me? I'm not. That's the old people. I don't. And I said, but honey, you'll be old before you know it. So don't be afraid of the market when you're young. In fact, the one thing that you have going for you that we older folks don't have is time. And that if you start early, you don't have to put as much of your income in as you do if you wait till you're 40 or 50. So go right ahead. If you've got a 401k, put as much in there as you can. If you can't reach the recommended percentage is about 15% of your gross pay, that's a lot of money. If you can't hit that target, start with 3%, 4%, 5%, and then every year increase it until you hit that 15. Do it when you're young before you build in a whole bunch of stuff to your budget. Budget. You know, once you start spending and getting a house and kids, you start adding stuff, it becomes much more difficult for you to save for retirement. The markets work historically, but in times like this, we get scared and we make decisions that are not in our best interest. When the Great Recession hit, it lasted about 18 months. And in the middle of it, we just thought it would never end. But it ended and there was a great recovery. And the Gallup looked at that, the people who got out of the market during the Great Recession, and many of them never returned. So not only were they not having their money grow, they missed out on the recovery part that comes after a recession. Again, this is all historical, but the markets have performed like it has in the past. And so you got to hang your hat on that. Just be patient and keep investing. Yeah, that seems like very solid advice. And I'm glad you brought up the Great Recession because we actually got another question related to that. We had a reader write in with an observation. They said that compared to the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, this period of economic chaos doesn't feel as threatening. And I wonder if you could speak to that, Rachel. What's different about this moment compared to 2008 and what's the same? 
Sure. I mean, I think that for anyone who thinks about the word recession, there are some very visceral memories that come to mind, whether that's the Great Recession from 2007, 2008, or even the recession from the pandemic in early 2020. If we're going to compare the moment that we're in now to 2007, 2008, I think there are some key differences. You know, then there was this enormous housing crash that triggered an overwhelming recession that spilled over into the global economy and took a very, very long time for the entire recovery, for job gains, for people to feel like their lives had returned to normal. The recession was severe. There were millions of jobs lost. And there was a similar sudden shock when the COVID recession hit. But I think that, you know, now, even as we're looking at the prospect of another recession or economists are thinking about the likelihood of another recession, the hope, I mean, it's hard to its hard to say a light recession. It sounds like an oxymoron. The hope is that if the economy did slow to such a degree that it tipped into a recession, that it would not spur, you know, millions and millions of job losses or cause the unemployment rate to spike in quite the same way that we saw in the last two recessions. Now, that said, we don't have any guarantee about what will happen in either direction. And I imagine it's cold comfort to anyone who is thinking about the prospect of losing their job or wondering how they would get through that kind of process. But if it is any consolation to maybe hope that a next downturn, whatever that looks like, would be different. I guess that's one thing we might think about right now. So uh, we got a question from a listener who is worried that there could be a recession and is trying to plan ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Susanna, and I have a son who's going into college this year. And he has some money in a 529, which we still need to pay into in order to cover his room and board for the next four years. So my question is, should I keep putting that money into it, knowing that the market is not doing very well and going into recession and I'm actually losing money? Or should I put that money into a savings account? Since I only have four years, I'm not sure what's the better option. So, Michelle, I wonder what advice you would have for this mom who is trying to figure out whether to keep putting money into a 529, which, for listeners who don't know, is an education savings plan. So that's such a great question. The closer you are to when you need that money, you don't want to put it at risk. And so she's right at the point where she needs that money. And since we are not quite sure how long this downturn is going to last, I probably wouldn't be investing aggressively if I were her. Um, You're going to need that money next year and then the year after that. And hopefully, you know, the recession or if there is one or downturn is not going to last four years. But at least for the money that she needs for the next two years, I wouldn't put it in the market. So she could split the difference, still put some money in the 529 plan for those later years and fund what they can from their current income and then use the money that they already have in the 529 for the first two years. That's how I would do it. And there's some other reasons to invest in a 529 plan. For example, if you're in a state that gives you a state tax deduction, that will help you on your taxes. But again, for those sort of later years. So if you haven't saved enough by the time they're going to college, that's not the time to take a whole bunch of risks because, again, you need that money too soon. Most experts say if you need the money in five years or less, you don't want to expose it to the risk of the market. So in some ways, this kind of reminds me of the advice you were talking about, about saving for retirement as a young person, 
where you should not be considering the possible recession as a reason to not save for retirement, right? That's right. Because you're not going to need that money for a long time. So get it in the market, let it grow. That's right. You can withstand a downturn. Yeah. I mean, what happened after the Great Recession, we had such a robust market that people got used to these great returns. But on average, the market is, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 percent. And so over time, when you average it out, you're going to get that return. And right now, inflation is, a, is pushing eight over a little bit over eight. And so your money is going to keep pace with inflation. And that is a huge reason to invest. You want to at least do that. But we know that this was This is a temporary thing right now because a lot of what's happened was because of the pandemic. So once we get, you know, factories back up, the thought is that things will even out. And that's why you don't want to panic. And, I, you know, I've been saying this and I know people, you know, don't necessarily want to hear it. If you are in good shape, if you're doing well, it's still okay for you to go buy that used or news car or take that vacation. It may cost you a little bit more, but if you have the resources, you've got your savings set, you've got your retirement set, you can go ahead and do that. We don't what we don't want to happen, which will push us into recession is someone who can do these things completely shut down and pull back because then we end up having the very thing that we are afraid of. Yeah, it's so interesting with both inflation and the recession anxiety. So much of this is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, which I think is really trippy to think about. But I wonder, Abba, if you could talk a little bit about how that works. Like how how does expecting inflation sometimes cause inflation or expecting a recession cause a recession? Absolutely. Those are both things that economists warn about constantly and are very worried about right now. If you expect inflation, if you expect that the price of toilet paper is going to double next week and you go out and buy just cases and cases of toilet paper, well, that's going to drive up demand. It's going to drive down supply and that's going to just contribute to further inflation. And so that's what economists don't want. They don't want people sort of hoarding because they're worried about gas prices or food prices or whatever else might be pinching people's budgets. On the flip side of that is the recession. And it's the same sort of idea. If people pull back on spending, then that means businesses aren't getting the money that they need. They maybe have to cut back on hiring. And it just sort of sets off this cycle of bad economic news. And so, you know, it's it's a balance. You have to, the economists want people to keep spending as much as they can, not to the point where they're overburdened and, you know, defaulting on their loans, but just kind of finding that right balance between what to spend and when. I think one thing a lot of people have been having trouble with right now is just how to think about this economy. It's such a weird time. There's so much uncertainty. On the one hand, we've been hearing all of these fears about recessions. There's uh, obviously very high inflation, which is really putting a strain on a lot of people. And yet unemployment is so low. A lot of people have gotten wage increases during the pandemic for the first time in many years. So I guess let's just go around one by one. And Rachel, we'll start with you. How do you think about this economy? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? What What do you think? Well, I guess I, I certainly feel either in talking to economists or policymakers or people who are thinking about this in their daily lives that, you know, I feel that sense of anxiety, this sense of uncertainty and and a sort of sense of foreboding over what is coming. I, I don't mean to dodge the question, but I tend to think of it as 
like I have all these questions too. And I think that I don't necessarily find that it's helpful to say either, you know, black and white, the economy is really bad or no, the economy is really good. And here's how you should think about it. I think that these things are all, or at least they've been for me, hard to sit with at the exact same time or sort of make sense of how all of these things can be true at the exact same time. And I think that giving all of ourselves a little bit of grace to be confused about that and know that we're all sort of trying to figure this out, especially in the backdrop of what the last couple of years have been like. Um, I don't know. I just wonder if maybe that brings a sense of like, I'm confused too. And yeah. I absolutely agree. But I'm also I'm also a bit of an optimist. I feel like there is a lot of panic and there is a lot of anxiety right now when you drive by the gas station and see that gas prices are just you know, going higher and higher by the hour. That's panic inducing, as is getting a lease renewal for your rent and seeing that it's gone up by double digits every month. But I think overall, the economy is still in very good shape. The job market is in fabulous shape. And the recession that economists are predicting for the most part isn't coming till next year. Most economists are thinking it's going to be sometime in 2023 and likely in late 2023. And so we've started sort of talking about a recession much earlier than we usually do. We've started panicking just months earlier than is typical. Um, but I think they're like at the ground level, there are many of these things, especially with inflation that are making people sort of feel much crappier about their situations than probably is actually the case. Michelle, I wonder, how do you think about this moment that we're in? I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, this is not the 70s recession when there were gas lines. It's not even the Great Recession. I like to try to put it in perspective. We're still in the middle of a pandemic and it's getting better. Not fast enough, but it's still getting better. And I just like to have people put it in perspective. So look at your own personal financial situation. Do what you can now to prepare yourself. Don't worry about the macro economy. It's going to take care of itself. Think about your own budget. But if you are sitting well, it's okay for you to spend. If you are sitting well, it's okay to keep saving for retirement. And then if you got extra, help other folks. You know, help someone you know is struggling. When you go out to eat because you still can afford to eat, hey, how about overtipping a little bit for that worker? Because maybe there's only five people working when it should be 10. So be a generous tipper and knowing that that money is going to help another family. Uh, that's, that's what I do in situations like that. Thank you all so much for taking this time to talk to us about the economy. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks, Maggie. Thank you. Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for The Post. Rachel Siegel and Abba Bhattarai are economics reporters. Maggie Penman is our executive producer. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Emma Talkoff produced this story with help from Charlotte Freeland. The show was edited by Rena Flores and mixed by Sean Carter. I'm Martine Powers. We hope that you enjoy your 4th of July, and we'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.